Father, I ask now that you would help all of us this morning, including myself, as we allow the word of God to cleanse us, to wash over us. May we not take this time lightly. It has been prescribed by you for the benefits of our souls, that our souls may rest, find nourishment, that we may feed on Christ, that we may walk out of here with a newness of life, that we would walk out of here with a fresh reminder of what it is that we are here for, why it is that we live for you, and what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn with me to John chapter 10. We'll be finishing John 10 this week, and then in two weeks, we'll be starting a series on the church, which I'm excited about. John chapter 10. I was going to try and squeeze two more sermons out of John 10, but... I have decided not to do that. I had read recently that someone has recorded over 1,050 plus commands to the believer in the New Testament alone. There's like 6,000 in the law. But just to the New Testament believer, because most of us understand that we are underneath the Old Testament law. So therefore we're in the New Testament. But then there's all these commands, 1,050 Just reading that number made me a little nauseous thinking, wow, that's a lot of commands. Things to abstain from, things to ask for, things to be aware of, to do on the behalf of the brother. And there was a whole list of categories of them. And these do seem overwhelming. In some ways, they should feel that way. But commands can feel overwhelming if you don't understand why you do them. And do you ever wonder why you obey speeding laws? I mean, for the most part, most of you probably didn't, as I didn't. Those are relative, right? <laughs> I've always wanted speeding signs to say 55 and whatever else the police officer will let you get away with, right? <laughs> or why do you obey tax laws, right? The, the taxes that you have to pay. Well, because the obvious reason is you don't want to pay the penalty, Right? You want that money to stay in your pocket instead of going to the government because you failed to obey the law. So you're really doing it out of fear. So that you, or some of you do it out of guilt. Some people, if they go 56, it just makes them feel guilty. And so there's, there's some of us that are like that. But why do we adhere to the commands in Scripture? I mean, they're there. We know that they're there. And so this is what my observation was when I was thinking about people that I've interacted with, my experience as a Christian, And this is why most people, or I would say this is why some people adhere to the commands in scriptures. For some, it's fear, right? They fear that God will reject them on judgment day. That's why I stopped on that song. If I haven't obeyed God's commands enough, when he comes in on judgment day, he's going to judge me. And he's going to basically see where my scales are at. If I've got more bad than good, well, now I'm in trouble. Well, some fear that God's going to punish them now. They don't want to be underneath the chastisement of God, so they make sure that they obey all the commands of God. Or it's the prosperity side of it. Do well, so God will do what? Bless you, right? So the fundamentalists always talk about the cursing of God. And the prosperity always talk about the blessing of God. And then there's fear. If they don't, maybe they are not a believer. So they make sure that they have fruit coming. And then there's a second group And some of it, it's just pure duty for them, right? I'm required to do it, so I do it. It, 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 It's it's not that I necessarily like to do all the commands in the scripture, but it's kind of how the gig flows, so I got to go with it. 
And these are the kind of people that I like to call the rule followers, right? You've got to love the rule followers. I've got a couple in my family. And then I also have people who are the rule breakers. That's, you know, and when they're siblings, that never works out well. I'm not a rule follower. I get it after my dad. My dad was horrible. If there was a rule, he wanted to break it because it was fun to break it. I remember as a kid, we were in L.A., and we were, I forget, we were down there for something, but he wanted to drive around, and we found Medieval Times. Has anybody ever been to Medieval Times, right? So we're like, let's go, and we get up there, and of course, what did we miss? We missed the time to get the tickets in time. So my dad's like, well, let's just walk around, because there's some stuff that you can see, and all of a sudden, he's like, these big two, like, barn doors. He's like, let's go in, right? What would the logical rule say in your mind? If it's closed... Don't go in, right? So we go in, and we're walking down this corridor, and all of a sudden we hear, hey, you! And all of this thud of horses behind us, and it's kind of where they enter into the arena. We're standing right there. The horses come piling past us, right? But that's like, oh, I don't think we're supposed to be in here. The rule followers, right? And then you have some because they don't want to feel left out. This is the peer pressure. They, they grew up this way, and everyone else around them is a obeying these commands in scripture so, so I, I don't want to feel like the one left out so I'm going to make sure that I obey those laws the peer pressure well understanding why we obey the Bible I think is very important see the gospel is why we obey the commands it has nothing to do with any of these other reasons. The gospel clarifies and frees us from the burden of obedience. I would say almost every single one of these reasons is a burden. It's the weight of the, what you are feeling, whether it's fear or guilt or pressure or I must do this in order so that I may have. Now recently in a podcast uh, we recorded, we were discussing what's called the third use of the law. And I'm not going to explain that to you now. Uh, maybe we'll get to that in some time in the future. But in this discussion, Byron brought out to a really helpful, I think, explanation of how the gospel plays out in our obedience and in our life every single day. Now, most of us have grown up with what we would say the first use of the gospel, how it's used in our life, right? You are a sinner, judged by God, you're condemned, and what do you need? You need salvation. You need to be saved. So we're used to this. We, we understand that. For most of Christianity, the first use of the gospel is the only use. Because from that moment on, it's now what the Christian must do. So, well, for instance, if someone is not grown up in church, and they're an adult, and they, are, they get the first use of the gospel, they're now saved. Then we sit them down, and we start to work through a list. Okay, this is what good Christians do, right? And we give them, we give them all of these commands from Scripture, or what we think are part of Scriptures. Here's the list of what you must do. And the first use of the gospel is all they got, and it's all they get. And just a reminder to them is like, oh, by the way, if you need to be assured of, that you're okay, just remember that you have the first use of the gospel. Well, according to Scripture, there is more to the gospel than just salvation. And we're going to see this in John 10, and as we move throughout the rest of John but here at CBC, I believe that we use what's called a second use of the gospel. And that use is that it's for not only the unbeliever, but it's for the believer every single day. The reality of Jesus Christ as my righteousness, as my Savior, by faith every single day. So the gospel is not what gets us out of punishment. It's what gets us into 
the glorious life with Christ. For instance, it is by faith that we are saved, but it's also by faith that we are transformed. It's by faith that we are glorified. One day our bodies will be transformed in the image of Christ. But it's faith in what? It's definitely not faith in my faithfulness, but that's what we're taught, right? So faith in Christ gets me saved, first use of the gospel. Faith in my righteousness keeps me saved. That's not gospel, that's law. It's faith in the faithfulness of Christ that transforms me and brings me home. That's the second use of the gospel. Why? What's the good news? What's the gospel? The gospel is that Jesus Christ did everything on your behalf. First use, good. Also, your standing before God, how he sees you, is also because of Jesus Christ. It's not because of your performance. So, faith in the obedience of Christ is our motivation or another, another form of the gospel or second use of the gospel. This is why the gospel is important for us to review over and over and over again and in deeper and deeper tones because it helps put our life and our category back to where it needs to be. By nature, we have a desire to grab onto the glory that uh, is, is due God. This is why in Ephesians, Paul says, just to, be, just to be clear here, no one is saved by their own works and neither are they sanctified by their own works. It is a gift of God, lest no one should boast. We'll get to that in a little bit. So what about all these commands then? Yes, John, we, we like hearing the gospel, we like celebrating the gospel, but you just admitted there's over a thousand commands. And yet, what are you doing with them? Well, I think his number is a little blown out of proportion because some of those commands are like Jesus says, get up and walk. <laughs> well, that command really isn't applied to us. So we have to be careful about some of those commands. No, but there are clear-cut commands, and we're going to look at a lot of these when we get into the church. There's a lot of commands given to the church, right? Of how we're supposed to love each other. How do you have elders? How do you have deacons? The way in which we read scripture, the way we pray, the way we take care of the poor. All of those are important and structure the church. But the reason I mention this is that your motivation for life comes from Jesus. If you do not understand the difference between law and gospel... And the first use of the gospel and the second use of the gospel, you will, you will confuse why it is and what, you, and what it is that you do as far as your motivation. So I want to show you your motivation for these commands must come from the gospel, must come from a clear understanding of what Christ has done for us. It has nothing to do with any of these previous ideas that I've given you, which is fear or obligation or peer pressure. Those are typical motivations. But after we finish John's account with Jesus here in John 9 and 10, I'm going to revisit this question with you as far as obedience. And I want you to clearly see that your obedience is something that's far greater, far greater, and far more motivating than fear, obligation, and peer pressure. Because what happens when the fear is gone? What happens when you no longer feel the obligation to do it? And what happens when there's no longer peer pressure or there's a negative peer pressure? Your motivation is now gone. This is why most pastors become motivational speakers and they're not gospel preachers because they're simply trying to motivate you to perform to a certain level. Instead of, as John says, I wrote this letter to you that you may what? Be better Christians. No, he said that you may believe in Jesus Christ because he knew those who believe in Jesus follow Jesus. What does Jesus say? If you want to be my disciple, what? 
believe my words. That's what he says. So let's get into John 10 and see what Jesus has for us as far as the motivation to obey him. Well, in John 9 and 10, it's all one big story. And in John 9, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful picture of just how blind you and I are before we see Christ. We are, we are so blind that we cannot even make heads of, and tails of any kind of coin that you want to put out there. There's just no way for us to logically come to the conclusion that Jesus Christ is our only way to salvation. Now, there's some confusion around this idea of being blind. Some people say, well, if that means if you're blind, then you would not even know who Jesus is. Don't be, uh, don't be confused here. It's a spiritual blindness. The people here acknowledge Jesus was real because they talked to him. In other words, most of you in here probably don't believe in ghosts because you don't talk to them. Some of you do. Some of you wish there are ghosts. Who knows? But you don't typically have conversations with things you don't believe in. Of course they believed in Jesus. They saw him physically. What they struggled with was the spiritual reality of Jesus. Jesus is God, and Jesus is their salvation against the wrath of God. That's what they struggled with. Of course, Jesus gives the vision for them to see This man born blind brought to light. And in that, Jesus uses an illustration and says, you who can see, because they claim to know the law, are blind. And those who are blind, I have brought to sight. Of course, which is a slap in the face to them. So that led Jesus right into John 10. He goes, okay, so you're not understanding my blind illustration. Let me give you a second illustration. And that is the whole discourse on the good shepherd. And in this, he is trying to help them understand that Jesus shepherds his sheep. And these sheep are his because the Father gave them to him. And he makes a very clear distinction for them. Do you want to know how I know who my sheep are? Because when I call to them, they come. That's how I know they're my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and they come. And then he says, oh, and by the way, I'm the gatekeeper to the sheep. You can't get into my fold, which is the sheep of God. He's playing a a double illustration here. You can't get into this without going through me. Therefore, I'm the one who checks. I'm the one who checks. And what's interesting is he's not checking your fruit on the way in. He's not checking anything but this. Do you hear my voice? And are you responding to it? That's another illustration of do you believe that I am the son of God? Right, And that's what leads us here. So Jesus has just finished this, uh, the shepherd's discourse. He's just got done uh, explaining to them that it's God's love for them that motivates Jesus to lay down his life for them. Right Now in this moment, Jesus does make some claims that he is God. Now according to the law, the Old Testament law, any man who claims to be God is a blasphemous and should be stoned. So, to these people's credit, when they pick up stones, they're actually obeying the law, right? The problem is God in the flesh is standing before them. They should never pick up a stone. But again, the whole point of John 9 and 10 is to show how blind unbelievers are. And it's not a matter of willpower, but it's a matter of the Spirit's power that brings people to life. So that's what brings us to John chapter 10, verse 19. So, let's begin reading. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Jesus got done basically claiming to be God. Many of them said, he has a demon. 
and is insane. Why listen to him? By the way, you ever wonder about uh, when Jesus talks about the sin that um, the sin of blasphemy that will you will not be able to um, repent of? This is what he's talking about: to see and experience the miracles of God and yet call him a demon. Yeah, that's an unreconcilable sin. Others said, which is not you're not capable of uh, committing that. By the way, today because Jesus isn't alive uh, uh, in the flesh on the earth, he is alive. Praise God. He's alive. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to anything he is saying? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Clearly, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Right? They had Jesus' last miracle as their argument. So John is recording this for the reader's obvious the, the, for, for obvious reason, this encounter, here's what John's conclusion is. So Jesus is done with the shepherd's discourse. Somewhat heard and believed, right? They heard the shepherd's call. No way can a man bring someone to light, uh, sight, and be empowered by a demon. That can't be. And others heard the voice of the shepherd, and what did they do? They turned away. That's the, so it's a beautiful picture. Jesus is talking about shepherd, sheep, those who hear my voice believe, those who don't, don't believe. So some of Jesus' flock reside in this story, and it's clear, on the other hand, that some don't. So look at verse 22. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, why does John mention these details? Well, I'm not really sure on some of them. Throughout John, he does it because it correlates with what Jesus is about to say, especially when he's dealing with some of the Jewish festivals, dealing with the Exodus and the Passover, and I eat my flesh, drink my blood, which is during Passover. I think here, John is just trying to help us understand the context because in John's mind, he's a real man, and this happened in real places. So I think for the reader... Of course, you and I have never been here. Does anybody have any idea what the Feast of Dedication is or where the Colonnade of Solomon is or why that's important to the Jews? No, we don't. Well, I'll give us a little bit of of an insight. It was helpful for me. But it's John's intentions to provide actual real-time and locations to remind us that this is the real words of Jesus. This is the real person of Jesus. Now, you might be interested to know that the Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated as a feast. Okay, it's this huge feast. And this is why they celebrate it. Here's the history behind it, the real quick history. In 162 BC, um, Antiochus Epiphanes, which some of you may know that from history, Antiochus, right, Antiochus, king of Syria, apprehended Jerusalem, robbed the temple treasury, and then made a mockery of Jewish tradition and culture and religion by sacrificing a pig on the temple altar. So where the Holy of Holies is and where God was and where the the, the incense would go up, and what is it that the Jewish culture did not eat? Pigs. And what is it that this man did? Sacrifice. So he totally made a mockery of who God was and made this sacrifice to Jupiter on the temple altar. Well, three years later, on Remember this date, December the 25th. The Syrian army were defeated by the Maccabean revolt, and the temple was cleansed and restored to the Jewish people. 
So on this date, which is called the Feast of Tabernacles, I'm sorry, uh, the, uh, yes, the Feast of Dedications, there was a, they were told to be reminded of the cleansing of the temple and the rededication of the temple. Now, most of us would also know this to be the celebration of Hanukkah. For those of you who didn't know, there you go. That's the history behind Hanukkah. So December the 25th was the cleansing and the reestablishment of the people of Israel back within their temple. Now, why is it John says that Jesus was walking in Solomon's colonnade? Well, I found this helpful, so let me just read this to you. So this porch, colonnade is another word for porch, was a long walkway covered with a roof supported on pillars on the east side of the temple overlooking the Kidron Valley. Colonnade served as a, as a shelter from the heat of the sun in the summer and from the cold rain in winter. Jesus used it as a center of informal teaching and preaching since there would be a, always be people surrounding him. So Jesus also often knew of traditions within Israel and where there would be crowds of people and he would go put himself in that crowd so that he can begin to share who he is amongst the crowd. So that's kind of the backstory about why Jesus, or why John would probably mention this. It's cold, so Jesus is going to be inside where a large group of people would be to hear him. So read verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You cannot make it more plain than that. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who is greater than me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now I want to quickly remind us how much Jesus has done for these people. It's not just John 9 and the miracle here. Jesus is talking about this entire experience that this Jewish people has been following Jesus from the moment of his public ministry. And so up to this point, you have a leader, which I'm sure Nicodemus didn't keep this interaction with Jesus to himself. We have Nicodemus, a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, And Jesus tells him that he is the son of God, plainly. It's not hidden speech, but this is in John 3, 13 and 14. And then you have the healing of the layman at the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus tells the Jews, I am doing the works of my father, right? You have all seen this man lay here for 40 years, and now he walks. Either that's the biggest scam in history, or the man was truly healed. And when he was healed, Jesus says, I'm doing the works of my Father. And they were blinded by it. Why? Because Jesus healed them on the Sabbath. So their own self-righteousness and the law blinded them from seeing this. So during the Feast of Tabernacles, he tells the Jews that he, this is in John 7, that he knew God and he was sent by God. What did they just ask? Tell us plainly. I have been telling you plainly for multiple days, for multiple months. He also publicly invited those who were thirsty to drink of him. This is also in John 7. Promising to give them streams of living water, which the scriptures spoke of. He is claiming 
to have the very gift that comes from God. He's saying, I am God. Streams of living water come from God, and yet I'm telling you, they come from me. This was that whole illustration about it coming from his belly, remember? And he told the Jews that before Abraham was, I am. Basically appropriating himself to be of the divine name. I am God. Before Abraham was, I am. So he presented himself as the good shepherd, identifying himself with God in the Old Testament and with Israel. So you have also big events, the feeding of the 5,000 and the healing of the man born blind of the most recent. So when Jesus finally tells them, listen, I have given you multiple, multiple opportunities to believe that I am God, but you don't. And then he tells them why. He doesn't say you need to try harder. You need to focus more. You need to stop being evil. You need to stop whatever. You need to obey the law more. He says something very strange. He says, my sheep hear my voice. You don't believe because you're not part of my sheep. What's interesting is that Jesus never in his ministry tells people how to become the sheep. He just says there are there are sheep and there are not. So they didn't lack evidence or confirmation. They lacked faith which is important to understand for later. Now, to go one step further, Jesus is going to use the law to prove them, to prove to them that they should believe in him, and yet, of course, they cannot. So look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Of course, obeying the law, as good Jewish people should. Jesus answered them before they began to throw, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? Right? Which of these good works from God are you going to stone me? Clearly, there is this argument of he has a demon, he doesn't have a demon. So he's saying, let's just be clear. Which one of these are, am I guilty? Which he asks multiple times, even to the point of his death. The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself to be God. Okay, they got his message. Right? So if anyone, just total side note for apologetics reasons, if anyone ever tells you that they believed in Jesus and that Jesus was a good man, but they don't believe that Jesus was God, you should say, well, then Jesus is not a good man. Because good men don't go around telling lies and convincing people of their lies. Jesus convinced thousands of people that he was God. That's not good, right? If he wasn't God, that's not a good thing. Therefore, either Jesus is a good man and told a lot of lies, or he was God, or he was crazy. Which one is it? Of course, this is the famous McDowell argument, right? But I think it's helpful to remember here that these people are calling him out. They're not going to let him have that claim. So Jesus answered them in verse 34. Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken... Do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe in the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. So he's going to lay it out as plain as possible. He's going to try and remove all confusion and use the law on his behalf. Now, 
he's, using, he's quoting, as uh, Anthony read earlier, he's quoting Psalm 82, 6 in its entirety. Well, mostly, uh, almost in its entirety. But as it's written in your law, I said you are gods. Now, this could be confusing because there's supposed to be no other god before God, right? Well, what, Jesus, what God is saying here in Psalm 86 is there's this, he's saying that you are the, I am giving you the message and the power of me. He's speaking to the judges here at this moment. He's saying if you would have been ruled well, this, you, you are basically little gods, right? Because what is Christians? Christian means little Jesus. So there's this illustration that you are holding the message and the power of God, therefore you are gods. Not in the pagan sense, but in God's standard of sense. And he's saying you are not going to be seen as gods because he ends up judging them and ends up killing a lot of the Israels at that point because they would not obey. So it's saying instead of being treated as gods, you will be treated as men and you will be destroyed. Jesus then uses this to his own advantage. By the way, when he says law, don't always think Mosaic law. To Israel, the, all of the Old Testament is the, the law to them. So that's how they understand the law being all of the Old Testament. So when Jesus writes, you are God's, or he quotes, you are God's son of the most high, all of you, uh, this, in this, Jesus is saying, if you have a problem with judging me, or if, I'm sorry, if you saw that it was right for God to call these people the representation, the power of God's, then you should not be judging me, because all I am saying is, I have the authority and I have the works of God, and I am performing those. Of course, they don't understand that. So, in verse 39, again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So he gives them multiple opportunities to see, listen, these works you are seeing, they are not my works. They are instituted by the Father. They are given to me by the Father. This is why he said earlier in John 10, I and the Father are one. My will is to do his will. I am not performing this. I am not making these claims because of my own power and will. It's because of who the Father has sent me to be. Of course, look at verse 40. So he went away again across the Jordan to to the place where John had been baptized at first. And there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no signs, but everything that John said about this man was true. Right? So John prophesied, but John never did any miracles. I love John 10, 42. And many believed in him there. So you have the same group of people who have the same amount of information. Some believed, and some did not. And it's not ambiguous as to why. Well, some were smarter, some were paying attention, some saw their need more than others, some heard the voice, and some did not. That's as clear as it gets. We often want tips for how to live a better Christian life, right? This is, this is kind of going back to my introduction. How can we obey better, improve ourselves, sanctify ourselves, be more holy? And please don't get me wrong, I I want all of you to obey. I want all of you to live holy for two main reasons. One, to live holy is a lot simpler, easier life than to live underneath sin and guilt and regret. No one wants to do that. And secondly, it's easier to get along with each other when we all obey, right? There's not, not as much fighting. 
People going to church has a lot of stress on it. It's because people are just being mean toward each other. So trust me, I want you to do that. But why do I want you to do that? Is the greatest motivation and the biggest question you must ask. There is something within humanity that if we earn something, we are less likely and freely to give it away, no matter what the reason is. There's a little bit of a recompense within us. Our time is precious to us, and we pride ourselves in what we have accomplished. This is why we hold on to our possessions. The object, no matter what it may be, is the trophy of our work, right? So there's, there's a sense of pride in it. But in Christianity, here's, here's the part that flips. Your faith is not your trophy. Your righteousness is not your trophy. Here's the thing that, will, that blew my mind about 10 years ago when I read this in the, in, from the Apostle Paul. Here is what's life-changing. You... Are the trophy. You're the trophy. Because God made you the trophy, not because you own a trophy. That, that's what's so turn with me real quick over to Ephesians chapter 2. I just want you to see this real quick. In Christianity, we are the trophy. You, you didn't earn the standing before God, Jesus did. And now Jesus holds you in his hand saying, Look what I've done. And yet we want to reach over and grab it from Jesus' hand and say, look what I've done. Well, this now makes Ephesians a lot more sense. Even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, you were blind. You were not capable of seeing. This is John 10. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Right? Grace is to receive something you did not deserve. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward him in Christ Jesus. For all of eternity. So get this. You are saved by grace so that for all of the coming ages you will be presented as the trophies of grace. Look what I've done. I took these sinners. I transformed them into the righteousness that is needed to be in my presence, and I did that through the Son. Therefore, you stand as trophies, right? Mind-blowing for me when I first read that. For by grace, verse 8, you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. By the way, remember when I talked about first and second use of the gospel? We always assume first use here. We always assume, oh, he means by going from condemnation to eternal life. Your entire life is saved and preserved. So it's not just your life before salvation, it's your life after salvation. All of it is a gift of God, and all of it is by grace. So we are what Jesus earned. That's the difference. We are what Jesus earned. He paid the price. You guys remember when Paul says what? You were purchased with a price. You have been bought. You are no longer your own. And then he says, now glorify God in your bodies. Now every time I heard this verse, I would think of it and I would feel guilty because he was saying, hey, listen up. This is like... (laughs) This is like what happens when parents talk to their kids. Hey, if you're living in my house and you belong to me and you're my kid, you're going to do what I tell you. No obey, right? And this is how we hear that verse. Well, God bought you. Now, you better act like it. 
Now glorify God in your bodies. And you're like, okay. You feel like this slave. But what does Jesus say? You're no longer slaves. You're my sons and daughters. He purchases us and changes us into families. Well, that's not how we see it. Now, going back to my first uh, (laughs) statement, we have a hard time giving things away that we've earned. Majority of sermons designed around the Christian life is how you perform better and in some ways earn the status of righteousness. And that moment that you earn it, you, you are not going to give that away. Even if it's giving it away to God. Because that moment you're saying, well, wait a minute. No, I, John, I have fought sin hard. And I have done well. And I have been faithful. And I, re- I resist temptation. What are you doing? You are holding on to your own righteousness. But here's the sad part is, is you're holding on to something that is of no value. Because there is none righteous, no, not one. That doesn't matter before or after salvation. You do not have the capacity to produce righteousness that is acceptable for God. Now, I'm not telling you you don't have the capacity to produce righteousness because you do. Righteousness means to do something that is um, approvable, that is good. You do. You, you guys do all kinds of good things, but it doesn't mean God accepts them because he doesn't accept partial obedience. He only accepts complete obedience. This is why in that song that we sang this morning, when Jesus returns, I'll find myself standing in the righteousness of Christ, his perfect obedience, because I was purchased and presented as a trophy of grace because of what Christ did. It, and when he cries, it is finished on the cross. Now, when, G, when, God, when Paul says, I'm going to get it right one of these days, right? <laughs> Philip, Moses, Jonah. <laughs> you guys do that as parents, right? Titus, Karis, Jane, lady, dog. When Paul says, glorify God in your bodies, this is how I want you to understand this. Which is, encapsulates all of obedience. If I were to walk up to you and I said, listen, there's a lot of people in Nashville that have needs from people that have just lost their job, that are struggling from all kinds of... There's people all over Nashville. And what we're going to do is we're going to take your bank account. We're going to go help them. And you're going to go, oh, really? (laughs) We are. (laughs) That's great. Because you do know I make like $60,000 a year, right? And I can barely pay for my own family. Why? That's yours. You earned that. You need that. You have to have that to survive. But if I walked up to you and I said, listen, I'm going to put a million dollars in your bank account. And this is what I want you to do with it. I want you to find as many people as you can help and give that money away. You know how easy it is to give away money like that? It's like, sure, no problem. (laughs) Write the check. Why? It's not yours. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything for it. And why not help people? That is how the Christian life should be seen. And this is why preaching of the gospel is so important. And this is why John 9 and 10 are so valuable. You are not the sheep of God because you found your way into the fold. You are the sheep of God because he purchased you and brought you in and said, you now have everything, everything in me. There is nothing left. You have 
all the righteousness that is required in all of the universe, it's yours. And now I want you to give it away. I want you to just give it all away. There's a side of you that says, well, now I'm going to obey because there's people who need it. Like people need me to be kind and loving and generous. And I'm not doing it because I need to hold on to something. I need to prove to you. I don't love my neighbor because I need you to value me. I love my neighbor because God values me. He values me. And it's not because I did something. That's the mind-blowing part of the gospel. The moment you begin to compare yourself with another Christian, which is what most sermons are about, do this and you'll be here. And shame on you for those of you that are down here. I look at you and say, look, I don't care where you're at. You have the same gift I have. And you've been given the same opportunity that I have been given to give it away. So let's get busy giving away. Because there's no fear. There's no obligation. (laughs) And if you're going to tell me giving away a million dollars to people in Nashville is an obligation, well, bless my little heart. What an obligation. Well, that's how the gospel's supposed to make you feel. So when you hear about these thousand commands that are in the the New Testament, you're going, okay. (laughs) I've been bought with a price. I've been set free and given everything. And he wants me to do that? I'm pretty sure I can do that. But that motivation cannot exist if you are not reminded by what the gospel is every moment of every day. This is why we must remain in the preaching of God's gospel towards us. And that gospel is, you went from child of wrath, Ephesians 1, to purchase, to transformed. And it's all because of the work of Christ on our behalf. Men, let's get ready for communion. When we say freedom, my friends, the act of giving is not the act of earning. We often feel this. We, there's a side of us that's like, man, when I give to the poor, I'm earning righteousness. No, the act of giving is the act of freedom. You are free to give because it's not yours. And it's not going to hurt you. And you are not going to go without. Because he has given you every blessing in Jesus Christ. So the gospel reminds us of who we are before God. And why it is that we should marvel every day. That he would choose to save a sinner like me. So there is no burden. This is why Jesus says, come to me all of you who are what? Heavy by burdens. And I will give you rest. Why? Jesus met all the requirements. So for me, in my own life, there's this new concept that I absolutely want to give my life away. Not because I want to live radical. I can't live radical. I've got four kids and a wife and a mortgage. And For those of you that put radical on, like, go to Africa. Well, I'm going to love you. And to me, that requires... It's radical faith. <laughs> no, I just want to give you what's been given to me. So this is how I live my life. I obey from a resting position. I rest on Christ, on what he's done for me. I rest, and in this resting position, I give my life to Christ because it's not mine. It's his. 
What joy to know that at the end of my life, if you missed anything I said, don't miss this. At the end of your life, you will hear this. Well done, thy good and faithful servant. Do you want to know why? Whose righteousness is he looking at? When the trumpet sounds, and him I may be found, and in his righteousness I stand, faultless before the throne. Well done, thy good and faithful servant, because I'm in Christ Jesus, and God looks at the righteousness of God and says, it is enough. Amen. Father, we thank you for reminding us once again, through multiple illustrations through the history and life of Jesus, that we can trust Jesus. And when he says he purchases us and that we belong to him, he is worthy to be trusted. And we have no reason to boast because we could have been like anyone else, looking at him and running away. But because of your glorious, kind grace, our eyes have been opened, and now we've been purchased, and now we have the joy of sharing such great news with others. In Jesus' name, amen.